And as you're getting settled and getting everything out, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. And today is an exciting day, at least for me. It's the day that we're starting this new series titled Family Portraits, the snapshots of a biblical home. And so between now and, and the end of the year or so, kind of depending on how fast or slow, I guess, depending on your perspective, uh, how fast or slow we move, we're going we're gonna to take a look at various families found throughout the Bible and, and see what we can glean, glean from them in the pictures that are there, both good and bad, good examples and bad examples, because we can learn from both. So over the course of this series, I want to attempt to show you what a, a biblical home looks like. And I'm doing this series because I believe the understanding of what a biblical home really is and, and how it should operate is critical for the believer trying to navigate today's world. You see, our culture has never been more at odds with what the Bible says about marriage and family, and gender, and those sorts of things. It's never been more at odds than it is today. And the difference between biblical truth and cultural norms in this arena, it seems to be increasing exponentially. That gap seems to be widening at a, at a faster and faster pace. And there's no doubt, in my mind at least, that the Bible is under assault in our world today, and the Biblical teaching on the home is not only dismissed, maybe like it used to be, but now is despised. And because of that, I want to double down like never before. And I want to attack the attackers. And in doing so, I want to arm you with the truth. So that you can make decisions in your home and in your life that reflect what the Bible says and not the pattern of this evil world. So that you can model Christ for your kids and that we can do that for the next generation. As opposed to what they're seeing in school and seeing on social media. So in this series, we are going to address some things that certainly are not popular outside the walls of biblical Christianity. And we're going to jump you know, right into the middle of the controversy today as we study God's perfect design for marriage. That's the title of today's message. And we need to start here because we need to start at the beginning. So our first marriage in this family portrait series deals with the first family and more specifically the first marriage, which is, of course, Adam and Eve. And just to, you know, make the devil mad right here at the beginning, we're not talking about Adam and Steve today. That's not a marriage as defined by the Bible. I'm going to show that to you today. But we're looking at Adam and Eve, one man and one woman. And in this account of the creation of man and woman and their subsequent union together, we do receive God's truth on marriage and the relationship that a husband and wife are to have in their home. Because God, in his perfectness, gave us the perfect design, the perfect pattern, the perfect model of marriage with Adam and Eve. Now, most of us, have been, if you've been around church very long at all, you know that sin entered into the equation, you know, immediately after this union. And that's no coincidence, by the way. 
And sin messed everything up to the point to where we find ourselves today, where dysfunctional marriages and broken homes are the norm. Marriage, by far, is the greatest area of counseling any pastor provides, myself included. And I believe it's Satan's greatest attack within the church. And listen, it it didn't take long for things to begin to fall apart. In Genesis chapter 2, what we're going to look at today, God introduces marriage. In Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of that chapter, Satan introduces sin. And then as soon as the fall occurs, just sort of listen to the progression. In Genesis chapter 4, one chapter later, we have the beginnings of polygamy. In chapter 9, we see shameful nakedness within a family. In chapter 16, we see adultery. In chapter 19, blatant homosexuality. In chapter 34, there's fornication and rape. In chapter 38, there's incest and prostitution. It's no wonder marriages are a mess today. Because sin makes a huge mess of things. And since we are all sinful, we bring that into our marriages. And all the while, Satan is just sitting back with his popcorn Enjoying every moment, enjoying every fight, enjoying every break in communication, enjoying every broken relationship, whether it ends in divorce or not. And it's bad in the church. Now, it's worse in the world. I mean, I'm not sure that that's any consolation or not, but it's worse. Pew Research put out a report in 2015 titled The American Family Today. And that report has some alarming statistics, which are are worse today than they were seven years ago. And I just want to read one paragraph. It's obviously not our focus this morning, but I just want to read one paragraph of of what was a quite lengthy report. In 2015, it says, uh, today fully four in ten births occur to women who are single or living living with a non-marital partner. At the same time that family structures have transformed, so has the role of mothers in the workplace and in the home and As more moms have entered the labor force, more have become breadwinners, in many cases primary breadwinners in their families. As a result of these changes, there's no longer one dominant family form in the U.S. Parents today are raising their children against a backdrop of increasingly diverse and for many constantly evolving family forms. And the problem with with that paragraph in its essence is it's in direct contrast to the one model that God established in the book of Genesis with this first family. You know, there's there's various family forms. There's, there's, There's so many changes. There's no longer one dominant family form. Well, there is in the Bible. And so I'm going to show that to you today. And God's way is perfect. We have to understand this from the beginning. His model is perfect. And while we will not necessarily be perfect in our marriages, we can get back to the pattern as we learn and know about God's perfect design. So let's see what it is. We're going to use Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, as our base passage this morning. So read along with me, starting in verse 18. The Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature. That was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
there was not found a help meet for him. He, he goes through all the animals, sees them, names them, and realizes, listen, you know, they're, they're in pairs, but I'm not. There was nothing that was meet for him. In verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today and we come to you in need of hearing from you. And Lord, I realize that I have nothing good to say in and of myself, but Lord, I trust that that your Holy Spirit wants to speak to each and every one of us. And this is such a critical topic today in in the life of a church, in the life of this church, in the life of homes and families. And and Lord, understanding the design that you set up, uh, Lord, is critical to success and not only a peaceful home, but success in the mission that you've given us. And and so, Lord, I pray that, that you speak clearly today, and I pray that you use it to, to change our hearts and change lives where they need to be, to, to begin to uh, repair marriages that are broken, and, and Lord, all for your glory. And so I pray that everything that's said is true to your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit is the one that speaks today, and I pray that you're glorified through all of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into the, the real details of this passage, I want to frame things for you and give you the overall context. Now, many of you will know this, but I want to make sure that everyone here, we're all on the same page. So in Genesis chapter 1, God starts with creation. By the way, evolution's a lie. Genesis chapter 1 says it. God starts with creation, and we see that creation account over the span of six days. And chapter 1 ends with this statement, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. That's the very end of chapter 1. And then chapter 2 begins with the seventh day of rest, and then God circles back and does a deep dive into day 6, where the man and the animals were created. And that's part of what we're looking at this morning. But like I said, this chapter begins on the seventh day after completing his creation project in those six days. And we've talked about this before, but it's not that God needed six days to create the heavens and the earth. And it's not like God needed to rest on the seventh day because he was tired and he, he couldn't go on. He could have spoken everything into existence at once. But he did it this way to set a pattern for us that we will then see throughout Scripture in time. Six days of work, one day of rest. And we're not going to show you what all that pattern means this morning. That's not the focus of this message. But I point it out to let you know that from the very beginning of the Bible, that God establishes himself as a God of patterns and pictures. God is a God of patterns and pictures. The Bible is a picture book, and there are pictures throughout. And when God does things first, when he does big things first, he's not just doing it to do it, and he's not just doing it for that moment. He's doing it to show us something much bigger and to set a pattern that will carry on throughout Scripture and time. And what we read in Genesis chapter 2 a minute ago is the first marriage in the Bible. And that marriage is not just about Adam and Eve. 
And it is not just about that moment in time. No, it sets a pattern and a perfect design for marriage for the rest of time. And I know this is true because of verse 24 in Genesis chapter 2. Look there again real quick. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You see, if this only applied to Adam and Eve, or only for that moment, this verse would make no sense whatsoever. Because Adam couldn't leave a father and a mother that he did not have. Not physical ones. He was the son of God. He was a direct creation of God. So this verse is there to show us and to help us understand what God is doing. He is defining and designing marriage for the rest of time. Even Jesus refers back to Genesis chapter 2 when he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 19. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 5 refer back to Genesis chapter 2. So listen, that means we do not get to define marriage. That means our government does not get to define marriage. I don't care what they say a marriage is. God defined it for us long before any of those knuckleheads were born. And it's the perfect design. Now, you can believe that or not. This world clearly doesn't. And there is great peer pressure even for churches to go along with worldly thought and philosophy. And many churches have gone along and accepted you know, same-sex marriages, for example. And many quote-unquote Christians today are explaining away the Bible in order to be politically correct and say, you know, well, that was outdated. Yeah, that, maybe that was true with Adam and Eve. That's not true for today. No, it's still true. And so they're explaining away the Bible in order to be politically correct, to go along, to get along, to not face the pressure from this world. But listen, you're either going to be a Bible believer or a Bible rejecter. There's no way to get Adam and Steve without resting Scripture or outright rejecting Scripture. And our position on this, a biblical position, it's not going to make us any friends in the world. And even more than that, it will likely make us enemies. But Jesus told us this will happen. Shouldn't come as a surprise. And we obviously have to be more, more worried about what God thinks than what this world thinks. So let's find out what God thinks. And like I told you before, this message is for everybody. If you're married, it's obviously for you. If you're not married but hope to be one day, learn this stuff now. Don't wait till you get into a marriage and you've made a mess of things. And even if you never intend to get married or you're divorced or a widow or widower who never intends to remarry, there is still so much you're going to see that you can apply to your personal relationship with God. As Christians, we are part of his bride. So there's something for everyone this morning as we analyze God's perfect design for marriage. And, and here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the reasons for marriage. That's point number one, the reasons for marriage. And we see the reasons for marriage begin to unfold in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So the reasons for marriage starts with God's goodness. It starts with God's goodness. 
God created marriage because he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And we'll talk about the why of that statement in a few minutes, why it isn't good for Adam to be alone. But I want you to know, just from the beginning, that God cared about what was good for Adam because he is good. He was analyzing the entire creation throughout to make sure that everything was right. Like we saw that in Genesis 1.31, right? And he saw that it was very good. This was the first thing that wasn't. So you need to know that when it comes to marriage, God created it from a position of goodness. That means God in, intended marriage to be a beautiful thing that is good for both the man and the woman. Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Marriage is associated with obtaining favor from the Lord. But, but here's the sad reality. There are many men, even men in attendance here this morning, who wholeheartedly disagree with that verse. And they found a wife, but they no longer think that's a good thing. Well, men, if you think that, according to the Bible, you are wrong. Now, ladies... On the flip side, let me just say this. When God uses the term wife, he is assuming that you are acting according to his definition of a wife and not acting according to your own flesh. Because while it is a good thing to find a wife, in Romans 7:18, Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For who to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. You see, nothing is good in our flesh, and nothing is good when we're acting in our flesh. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why Solomon also said in Proverbs 21.9, it is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. And then, Listen, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm just going to say it like it is. and I'm equal opportunity, so ladies, don't worry. There'll be plenty on both sides. But then down in verse 19 of that same chapter, it also says it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. And those two verses describe a woman in her flesh. But again, listen, words matter. I want to point out that neither of those verses use the word wife. They use the word woman. And that's because God assumes a wife won't act that way that she understands the second aspect to the reasons for marriage, and that is God's glory. So we, the reason, first of all, is God's goodness. Second, it's God's glory. And this gets to the fact that the woman was made from the man. That's the next step to Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. And we read, we won't go back there again but for sake of time, but we read in verses 21 and 22 that woman was made from the man's rib. And Paul gives further insight into how this relates to God's glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. It says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for, for inasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 
Now this is where you guys stick with me. Because if you hear what I'm about to say through a sort of a microphone cover of this world, you're going to get mad at me. <laughs> and you're going to get mad at God. I don't want you mad at me. I don't want you mad at God. But I'm going to tell you the truth. Paul is giving insight into how God's glory is attached to the marriage relationship. And he says that in the beginning, man was made in the image and glory of God. Our cross-reference is Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Listen to the words very carefully. And God said, let us, the Trinity, make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Okay, so, so I'm going to explain all this. So man is the glory of God. Now, unfortunately, we don't, we don't live like that and we don't usually give him glory, but, but that was why we were created. We've already talked about this. From the inception of time, from creation, we were created to be his glory. The woman, on the other hand, is the glory of the man. According to Paul, she is the image of God in as much as she is the image of man. Because she was made from the man. She was taken out of man. But listen, this by no means implies that the woman is inferior to the man. If you believe that, you have to infer that on Scripture because it does not say that. In fact, we'll get into this even deeper into our next point. All this is saying is men and women have different roles. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he, he, he makes, makes a point that is popular enough, it's made its way into many marriage ceremonies. And he said this, The woman was made out of a rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And there's great truth in all that. She is equal, but brought to the man that she might be for him, not inferior to him, just playing a different role. And understanding this is key in God getting glory in the marriage relationship. The wife is to be for her husband, not in the sense that she is his slave, to do whatever he wants. And shame on the husband if that's how he views it. But she is for him in the sense that she's behind him backing him up, supportive of him, and she wants him to succeed, and she is deeply involved in the process. She is undergirding him in every way she can and finding delight in doing so, so that together they might achieve the objectives which his head, Christ, has set before them. And that is how she becomes the glory of the man, because as she lifts him up, God gets glory. And if she does that, she brings God's glory even if her husband isn't. And she won't be judged for that. He will. And that brings us to the third and probably the most important aspect to the reasons for marriage. And that is God's goal. You see, God has a goal in marriage and it's the mission that we've been given. We spent three weeks talking about it. And here's how I know the woman's role is not inferior to the man's. He couldn't do it without her. 
She is just as necessary as him. That was true of Adam and Eve, and that is still true today because it is the pattern. This is the portrait we're seeing from this first marriage in the Bible. And the mission for Adam and Eve was go make babies and replenish and subdue the earth. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Obviously, Adam couldn't do that alone. He needed a helper that was meat for him, that fit him and provided the means to accomplishing the goal, which was the mission. And I'm not going to take time. We don't have time. we got a lot to cover this morning. I'm not going to take time to, to fully explain all that I'm about to say. So you can study this on your own. You can ask me later. But God created Adam with the purpose of physically restoring what was lost in the rebellion of Lucifer and the sons of God that, that were with him. That was the goal of the first marriage in the Bible. Well, guess what? Because it's a pattern. We have the exact same goal today, or purpose today. It's just in a spiritual sense. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You see, as Christians, what are we to do? We are to populate this earth with spiritual sons of God. We're to have spiritual children, so we're to evangelize and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That is how we worship God. We've talked about this throughout that series. We are tasked with spiritual reproduction. And guess what? We can't do that alone either. We have to do it in conjunction with our bridegroom. Jesus Christ. I don't have the ability to save anybody. You don't have the ability to save anybody. All we can do is bring them to him. So you don't have to be married to accomplish this goal. But if you are married, your marriage is designed by God to make that job easier. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I could not do what God has called me to do without Jennifer. God knew that it was not good for Troy to be alone. I would make a complete mess of things. And back to our last aspect of the reason for marriage. If there is anything I do that brings God glory, God knows Jennifer's role in that. He keeps track. And I can only bring God glory because she is doing what God has called her to do behind the scenes. It's not inferior. It's just different. It's the world that tells you it's inferior. Don't believe their lies. God's way is perfect. But, but back to the point, understanding God's goal and the mission, let me ask you about your marriage. Is your marriage about the mission, or is it just about building a nice life for yourself? God's not opposed to you having a nice life, but listen, he is absolutely opposed to you not using your marriage in the way he designed. 
He designed everything for a purpose. And the picture is to show something. What does your family portrait show? Does it show a marriage committed to the cause of Christ? About the mission of Christ? Or does it show a marriage committed to the world and the things of this world? That is not the reason God brought you two together. He has a goal in mind, and it's about the mission. So let's live it out. That is how he gets glory. And if we're not doing that, we're not giving him the glory that he deserves. But not only are there reasons for marriage, but in God's perfect design, he also lays out the roles in marriage. I told you there are just different roles. They're not inferior. They're just different. We've obviously been talking about this some already, but I want to nail it down here specifically for you. So what we've already seen is that the wife is to be a help to her husband in the mission. And those last three words are key, by the way. A help in the mission. So Genesis chapter 2 establishes the husband as the leader of the home and the family. And we see that throughout Scripture. We already looked at a couple verses from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but I want to go back there and look at the first three verses of that chapter. And, And again, listen very carefully. Don't hear what I'm not saying, and don't hear what the world has been telling you. Hear what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered unto the, you. But then verse 3, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so Paul outlines very clearly the pattern and biblical principle of headship here, particularly in verse 3. The head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And the principle of headship, the leadership structure that God has established, is threefold as seen in that verse. Now, obviously the semi-controversial one is the middle one, right? The head of every woman is the man. The head of the woman is the man. But listen, that will make sense to you, or at least it should make sense to you when you understand the other two, how it's bracketed. They should shed some light. So the first one is the head of every man is Christ. So men, that means you are to lead as you follow. If you're not following Christ, then you don't have the right to demand that your wife follows you. Now, she should anyway. We'll talk about that in a second. But your focus should always be on following Christ, not on what your wife is doing or not doing. Focus on what you are doing or not doing in following Christ. That's why Paul started out how he did in verse 1. Listen, it's a fairly bold claim, although he made it over and over in his epistles. But it's a fairly bold claim for Paul to say, be ye followers of me. But Paul was their leader. He was the founder of the church at Corinth. He was their spiritual father. And he expected the Corinthians to follow him. But why could he expect this? Because he followed Christ. That's how he ended it. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That's where our headship has to start as men. But now I want to I skip the second, and I want to jump to the third level. The head of Christ is God. This one is amazing. And this one will, should shed some really bright light for you. Because here we have a perfect example of headship 
and how it is supposed to work in the home demonstrated for us in history. And listen to this next sentence very carefully. Jesus, the Son of God, equal to the Father in his deity, the same Jesus is God, yet when he assumed humanity, he submitted himself to the leadership of his Father. And listen, everywhere Jesus went, he stated this. John 4, 34 says, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. John 8, 29, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. John 14, 28, listen to this. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice. But I said, I go unto the Father, listen to this, for my Father is greater than I. It's an interesting statement to say from God. He absolutely was God, even while he was on this earth. He knew it. He is the second person of the Trinity. That's why he said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Because he is. So Jesus is God, is therefore equal to God, yet willingly put himself under the headship of God. You, you hear that? You need to understand that. And you need to understand both sides of that coin because if you miss the first part, that Jesus is God, then you become a Jehovah's Witness and you didn't even know it. And that's bad. You don't want to fall in that camp. No, Jesus is God and therefore equal with God, yet he put himself under the headship of God. And that should make you make, help you make sense of the third headship structure we've yet to discuss. The head of the woman is the man. Because just as Christ was equal with God, yet willingly submitted to and follow God, that is exactly how the wives are supposed to be. Was Jesus inferior to God? No, of course not. So ladies, you of, of course are equal to men. But God has a structure that even he himself submitted to. He's not asking you to do anything he didn't do. So the wife is one with her husband. She is equal to her husband. She never has to be alone under God's plan. And yet her husband is the head of her life. So the woman has been called to follow, but she is to do it voluntarily. Why? Because that's what Christ did. And that's submission. It is a voluntary commitment carried out in practice out of the conviction that God's will is best achieved by this means. So ladies, you don't even follow and submit because your husband is worthy. You follow and submit because Christ is worthy. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. You do it because you trust the Lord and because you believe his ways are perfect. And he set it up perfectly. Listen, there was no complaining that God's setup was wrong before the fall. You see, and, and you need to listen to this. God did not set men as the head because of the fall. 
that was set from creation. That's not a result of the fall. That was set from creation. Genesis chapter 2 was before the fall. The thing that changed after the fall is how it's viewed. Genesis 3.16, Under the woman he said, Because of their sin, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. You see, it wasn't the structure that changed, but the desires change. And, and ladies, that's why you might be feeling a little bit of something right now. If it just doesn't all set right. It's just a result of sin. We're not in a perfect environment anymore. And something that was set out perfectly has been skewed because man is no longer perfect. And it's one thing to submit to a perfect man, but it's another thing to submit to your man. But that's the role. That's the role. That's the perfect design that God set up. Okay, so now men, let me come back to you. I know the ladies are thinking that it's about time, but all right, so let's, let's, let's focus on the, on the men for a second. Because men, we are the head. That means we, we are the leader. We are to lead, but, but we are to lead according to Christ as we follow Christ. We're not void of our own headship. Paul told us that Christ is our head. And how did Christ lead? Christ led through death. Christ led through death. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, in that, you know, that, that uh, extended scripture that Paul de- describes the husband and wife relationship. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself for us by dying for us while we were yet sinners. So think about that. When we didn't love him, when we didn't submit to him, he still loved us and died for us anyway. So do the same for your wife. I don't care if she's not submitting to you. I don't have other advice for you. Die anyway. I told the ladies earlier that their submission is not based on our worthiness. It's based on the Lord's worthiness. Well, the same thing applies to us, of course. Do right no matter what. Reckon yourself dead in Christ for your wife. And listen, this is not just found in Ephesians chapter 5. This is found in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is the model, it's the picture, it's the pattern. Look back, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's so much that we just don't have time to get into, even to the phrasing of the bones and flesh, but not blood. There's so much in here. Um, but but I, ju- I just need you to see the highlights. What we see here is that Adam gets his wife through a deep sleep. And sleep in the Bible consistently points to death. 
One example is Jesus talking about Lazarus in John chapter 11. In verse 11, we read, These things said, said he, Jesus, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And then the, this really confused the disciples because they thought Jesus was dead. And so, so Jesus just tells them very clearly down in verse 14, Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He, said, he, he says in verse 11, he sleeps. In verse 14, he said, yeah, he's dead. Well, those, are, those are one and the same. That's what sleep is likened to in the Bible. Speaking of the rapture of the church, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. You see, some of us are going to be alive when the rapture happens. We're not all going to be dead. But those who aren't, those who died before going to the rapture, they're, they're going to be raptured too. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even them also which sleep in Jesus, who have died before, will God bring with him? So bringing this back to Genesis chapter 2, see the picture. See this family portrait. The first Adam had to die to get a bride. And by the way, I do believe he died. And I, I would not be dogmatic about it, and I know that the command of, about eating of the, the fruit of the tree, that they shall die. But it never said that he wouldn't die before that. I believe he died, but just like I believe Jonah died, just like I believe Paul died, because Jesus died. But take that for what you will. The first Adam had to die to get a bride. And Jesus, the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15.45, also had to die to get a bride. Us. And both deaths involved the piercing of the side where our ribs are located. Genesis 2.21 says that God closed up the flesh because there was a piercing. And then Jesus on the cross in John 19.34 says, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Forthwith came, out, came there out blood and water. You see, the picture can't be clearer. Husbands, die for your bride. Mortify therefore your members. Quit being selfish. Does your family portrait reflect Christ in this way? We are to lead by being a servant to dying. That was Christ, and that's what we're to be. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of Jesus, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's our role. We have a lot to live up to. And many times when we fail to live up to our roles, and this applies to both men and women, it's because we don't understand our third point this morning, and that's the results of marriage. So we both have, we have hard roles. The wives are for the husbands to, to, to support, to be behind, to submit, so that God's mission can get accomplished better. The men, we are to lead from a position of following Christ or means we're to die to ourself we're, we're to, to live unto God and, and, and bring our life, wife along with us in that these are both very hard roles and so what happens is our marriages get messed up and it's because we partly because we don't understand what actually happened in marriage and the results and we find the results in verse 24 and these last two points are going to go quicker so don't worry Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And in this verse, we see two primary 
results of marriage. It's not the only two results, but, but based on Genesis 2.24, two primary results of marriage that I, that I want to show you, because these are, these are problem areas. These are, I think, the key problem areas in marriages many times. And, and the first result is we see a new family unit. A new family unit. See, we are to leave father and mother and cleave, attach ourselves to our spouse. Now, this admonition was given specifically to the man, but it applies to the woman as well because of how verse 24 ends. The two become one in marriage. And in the leaving and cleaving aspect of marriage, a new independent family is born. And that family unit is one. And like a new birth, that family, that new family is even Trinitarian in nature. Like we are individually. Adam was made in the image of God. We saw that in Genesis 1.26. That means he was made as a reflection of the Trinity. That's what, let, us, let us make man in our image of the Trinity. So man has a body, soul, and a spirit. Now today, after the, the fall of Genesis chapter 3, man's spirit is dead. It, it, it isn't made alive until after we are saved. And when we are saved, the Holy Spirit quickens or brings to life our spirit. spirit. But, but man has a body, soul, and spirit. And a saved man is truly Trinitarian in nature, just like God. And so is the birth of a new family. That's perfectly pictured by God. And the Trinitarian nature is father, mother, or helper, and children. All right, there's a, there's a picture there that, that I won't even take the time to go into. But, but there's a Trinitarian nature, father, mother, children. And I get it, not every family reflects this model. Some people aren't able to have children, for example. This is just all a result of the fall and ramifications of sin in our world. But the model outlined in Genesis 1 and 2, father, mother, children. And it's unique. It is a new thing. And many of the marriage problems we see in our, our culture is because both parents and children don't recognize the picture. And so when a man and woman get married... Sometimes one or both of them are too tied to their relationship with their parents. And that becomes a hindrance in their marriage because it breaks the picture. Something new has been born. And then on the flip side, sometimes parents aren't willing to let their children go. And they try to stay too involved in a family unit that is new and not theirs. They have theirs. They have their own family. And quite honestly, they end up sticking their head where they don't belong. And I'm not saying that parent-child relationship should end at marriage. It, it shouldn't. But it certainly should change. That's the result of marriage, a new family. But then the second result of marriage, and this is probably even, not probably, this is even a bigger problem, is a new identity. A new identity. And that identity is that you are now one. One flesh. And that's obviously 
pictured in the physical intimacy in a marriage, but it's way more than that. And another of the problems that I see in marriages today is that people are married, but still thinking and living like they're single. Because they've bought into the lies of this world that says you need to be your own person. Yeah, you're getting married, but don't lose your identity. Don't lose who you are. Don't let a man steal that from you, or don't let a woman change you. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Because once you get married, you aren't you anymore. You are now us. Accept that and embrace that. My identity is now throughout the rest of time tied to Jennifer. I am her husband. I'm not my own man. I'm Tanner, Jackson, and Kate's father. That is who I am. I don't want it any other way. So many people want to remain their own person in their marriage and basically live a separate life from their spouse or siloed lives. Listen, if that's you, you are the fulfillment of the last day's prophecy of, of, of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that says, For this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. How is that defined? For men shall be lovers of their own selves. It's selfishness. You can't do that and expect to have a successful marriage because it breaks the picture. You are to love them. You're to love your spouse more than you love yourself. But man, that's hard to do, isn't it? We don't live like that very often, do we? Listen, you're to have a new identity together as one. That is the picture. But if someone took a snapshot of your home, would it reflect that? Because so many don't. So don't ignore the results of marriage. Things changed at a physical level and at a spiritual level. And that's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing that God designed for us in his goodness. But make sure you change too. You, you, you envelop your identity into your marriage. And then fourth, our last point. So we've got the reasons for marriage, the roles for marriage, the results of marriage out of, out of verse 24. And then, and then verse 25, we see the rewards of marriage. And I understand that, that we have some younger people with us this morning, and, and so I, I promise I'll, I'll tread lightly here, but I want to read Genesis 2.25. It says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And probably some of them are giggling just at the reading of that verse. But, but listen, there, there are some obvious benefits related to the physical relationship in a marriage, but that's not even what I want to focus on. Those are obvious. Here's what I want you to see. In God's perfect design for marriage, this is what it includes. It includes both the man and the woman living in beauty and purity of a marriage relationship. Something that should be sacred. And there should be complete freedom that comes in a marriage and a home. Now, Genesis 2.25 was before sin. But I, but I want you to see the picture. And here's the picture. 
God wants us to have a peek into Eden in our marriage relationship. And Eden was a place of perfect beauty and perfect peace and perfect rest and perfect freedom. And that's exactly what our marriage and our home should be. That's what God intends it to be. A place where nothing is hidden. Where you can come out of the world and into your slice of Eden. And the stresses of the day can disappear or be lightened because you're with the one you love in your home. A place of peace that is glorifying to God. Because when the Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, that means they were clothed with God's glory. And I say that because they were made in his image. And the Bible tells us how God is clothed. Psalm 104 verses 1 and 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed, he doesn't leave us to guess, with honor and majesty. That's how God's clothed, with honor and majesty who covers thyself with light as with a garment. His garment is, is light. His, his light is honor and majesty that is reflected in light, just like a garment would be, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. So God is honored, clothed with honor and majesty. It's reflected in light. That is his glory. You can't help but see the glory of God when you see God. That's why, that's why people can't see God. And when we live our married lives, like Genesis 2.25 explains, in complete openness and true intimacy, reflecting God's glory, because we are about the mission, we can be unashamed. Now, again, the world has, has perverted all of this. And sin's messed everything up. And and. and you know, I'm talking two sides. I'm trying to be careful, but I, I, I trust you're seeing the picture. There's, there's a physical side to this, but there's also a spiritual side to this. And, and nakedness is a shame today because sin's messed everything up. But God intended the intimacy in the marriage to be pure. Hebrews 13.4 is a cross-reference for you. I won't take the time to read it here. But this part of the marriage and intimacy with the Lord that it pictures. So, so not only the physical union, but the spiritual union. That is what is supposed to fuel and enable the mission. You, you come home in and, and perfect peace and perfect union with your wife. And, and the intimacy together there, and the intimacy you have with Christ fuels what you do out in the world. So together you can both be about worshiping God by making disciples who exalt his word, edify his body, and are equipped to evangelize the world. You see, when you guys aren't together as one like God intended, the mission suffers. New life isn't produced like it naturally does when things are functioning as God intended. Again, I'm trying to be somewhat discreet. I trust you're picking up on the pictures. And the pictures are beautiful. God's design is, in fact, perfect. So just think about it, what this all is. This is a picture of a man laying down his life so that new life can be produced. It's exactly what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ died. We came out of his side. It's through the shed blood of Christ that our sins are washed away, that we're reconciled back to a right relationship with God. Just like Eve came out of the side of Adam, 
we came out of the last Adam's side. And just like Eve was to be the help, meet for Adam's use to fulfill the mission God gave him, the same thing is true of you and me. We are to reproduce the life of Christ in others. But can I tell you that so many of God's people today don't live this picture and their marriages aren't a reflection of the intention of God. And in practical reality, they're Christians in name only. And so they take the name of Christ like Eve did in Genesis 5-2. Adam, her name was Adam. But they don't live the life of Christ. They take the name of Christ, but they don't live the life of Christ. So this would be like Jennifer, my wife, who has taken my name. If she were to come to me and say, Troy, I love you, but on Fridays, I'm going to start hanging out with Joe. Like, Joe's a pretty fun dude, and I like hanging out with him a lot, and I want to start spending some time with Joe. I mean, no, I mean, don't worry. I'm not leaving you. I love you. I'm all about you. I just really like Joe, too. And I, I want to get to know him a little better. I'll be home at some point. It's fine. There's nothing to worry about. In that scenario, do you think I would be impressed with my wife and her choices? Do you think I'd be like, hey, that sounds great, honey. Go have fun with Joe. No, no moron would ever think that is appropriate. <laughs> I'd have a pretty big problem with that because Joe has no place in our relationship. But listen, we laugh at that. It's exactly what we do to Christ. And church has become sort of a country club and it's not a place to come get equipped for the mission to go carry forth and, and, and live the mission with your spouse. And as Christians, we're telling the Lord, Lord, I love you. And, you know, and I love these other, I love these other believers in here too. But I, I only want to spend a couple hours a week with you. And the rest of the time, I, I want to hang out with Joe. God forbid. If that's you, why are you wasting God's time? Breathing God's air. God made you to matter for the mission. And your marriage is to be a picture of that, an enablement of that, a fuel to glorify God with your life. God created us to be meat for his use. And if you can just get this picture and understand the reasons, the roles, the results, and the rewards that marriage provides, you can do it to his glory. And you can do it together with your spouse. What a great thing it is if you're married. That's how God intended from the beginning of time.